Calvary Chapel, Mason City. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 14 today. Should be, yeah. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. So Peter is now closing the letter to these suffering Christians by giving them instructions for the church. He's telling the elders, the leaders in the church, what they need to do. He's talking to young people, and he's just talking to everybody then, all in general. And these are the closing instructions for the church that suffers. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord, as we approach your word today, we do come to it as the very words of God. And so we ask that by the power of your spirit that you would illuminate the truth to our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see ourselves, that we might see our Savior, that we might understand that which the Spirit says to the church. And we ask in Jesus' wonderful name, amen, amen. Very simple today, as I mentioned, the outline to the elders, to the young people and all, and then the last little section to readers. It's his closing little outro there. So to the elders, he says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. So he's continuing the thought from chapter four, verses 12 through 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. You remember he said that judgment, you know, would begin at the house of the Lord, that the church is, you know, as the church, we are the ones that God disciplines us. He corrects us. And now continuing on with that, if judgment starts in the house of the Lord, then the elders who are among you have an important uh, responsibility. And so he exhorts those elders. Now the word exhort, you know, he's just, he's encouraging them. He's instructing them. He's saying kind of, you know, do this, you know, essentially. Now, he uses this word elder here, and we should talk about it for a second. It's the Greek word presbyteros. It's where we get the word Presbyterian. And um, the Presbyterian church, you know, followed an elder-led model. And so that's where Presbyterian comes from, the word presbyteros, which is translated 
elder. Now, the definition, it, it is, typically just means a mature or experienced leader within the Christian community. Um, it's not always to do with age. Um, age is no guarantee of wisdom. Now, the office of pastor came in New Testament times, but essentially they are elders that teach. They're a teaching elder, and that's what a, what a pastor would be. Uh, Paul lays out the qualifications for them in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, very familiar, Titus 1, 5 through 9. Paul gives the uh, qualifications for elders and for deacons and for their wives even in those sections. And so very helpful if you're you know, involved in ministry in any form uh, to look at those things and uh, to learn uh, from them. And, and they're you know, things that anybody serving in church should be growing in these things. <clears throat> he says, I am a fellow elder. Now, Peter shares this same office. Now, I'd like to point this out that he... Although Peter is an apostle, which is, you know, different in the sense of he has authority, uh, absolute authority, like Christ, like Christ gave the authority to the apostles. They wrote the word of God. And so they write, and the things that you find in the Bible are authoritative in a sense that no other elder uh, has that authority unless they are actually one of Jesus' apostles. But, but Peter says here, I am a fellow elder. So he speaks to them. He puts his, himself in that same uh, you know, thing. And uh, I think that's a very important lesson for leadership right there, that um, we need to be among the people. We're not set off in some office where people you know, can't talk to us and can't touch us and, and where we've got a parking spot that's labeled you know, just for us you know, and everybody else better watch out because here comes the elders, here comes the pastor. I don't think that's a biblical thing at all. Peter does not introduce himself as the Pope. He says, I'm a fellow, a fellow elder. And he also uh, is a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now, I think there's all kinds of commentators suggesting different things about this uh, statement right here. But I think what he's getting at is you remember the uh, Mount of Transfiguration when uh, Jesus took, you know, the, the inner three up on the mountain and he appeared in his glory and Moses and Elijah were there. And then remember, Peter got so excited. He's like, we should build condos right here and just never go down the mountain. I'm just paraphrasing, just joking around. But he said, we should stay here for, you remember? And then remember the voice of God rebukes Peter. No, look at him. You know, like Jesus and Moses and Elijah are not on the same level. Look at Jesus and no, we're not going to set up camp up here and forget about everything else, right? So I think that he's partaken of the glory. He's seen Jesus and is transfigured in the metamorphosis. He's seen him in that state of how Jesus will appear in eternity. I think that's what he's talking about. But uh, it's interesting, though, because he says, partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So some have you know, thought he's probably talking about uh, when we see him in glory you know, at his second coming or if you know, we die and we see him face to face. So we can ask him when we get there. So Peter is exhorting the male leadership in the church, the elders, the pastors. Now, he has the authority to exhort and to give authoritative directions because he is an apostle. You remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. But as a fellow elder, he exhorts. Verse 2, here he begins his instructions. He says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Here's the first instruction is they are to shepherd. 
This is the same charge that was given to Peter. Do you remember after Peter's denial? Uh, you remember the crucifixion, uh, burial, resurrection, and then Jesus comes uh, later and the guys are back fishing in the boat in the end of John chapter uh, 21. And uh, you remember Jesus is, you know, I see you, you know, out there fishing, having a tough night. Oh, throw the net on the other side, right? And, and then right then they recognize it's the Lord because this has happened before. And so Peter tosses off his garment and he jumps in the water and he goes all the way to the shore and Jesus has fish cooking and everything. What a breakfast, uh, eat with Jesus on the shore. And, but Jesus hasn't seen Peter, you know, since the denial thing, like, you know, he hasn't had this like restoration moment. And, but Jesus sits with him. You remember, do you love me, Simon? Do you love me? He goes back and forth. And then what does he say? <coughs> Feed my sheep. That's what he's talking about here. Shepherding the flock. The definition of the word shepherd in the Greek, uh, it just means to tend, to feed a flock. <clears throat> it's the Greek word poimiano, which comes from the re- root word poimen, which in Ephesians chapter 4 is translated pastor. So pastor is a shepherd. Pastor feeds the flock. That is the main job of the pastor is to feed the flock of God, to tend to the sheep of God. There's also warning, correction, uh, sometimes providing for the physical. You know, this is what the pastor is to do. Uh, The warning, the correction, the feeding, the encouragement, the teaching how to follow Jesus. So he's saying, feed, tend to, care for this group of believers that is among you. I want to go on a side for a second, just so this won't be a rabbit trail, hopefully. But the whole idea about the church as a flock, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, I remember before I was a Christian, I used to be a punk rocker, you know. And when, we, when you're into punk rock, man, you say things like, man, all these Americans, they're just sheep, man. They follow, you know, they all follow trends and they're capitalists or, you know, you've got all these problems with life when you're a punk rocker. And, uh, you know, you call people sheep, you know, or, or sheeple. Remember that? And then you become a Christian and you start learning that the Bible calls us sheep. And you say, well, you know, that's interesting, uh, you know, because uh, why would you call me that? And, and then you start to think of the parallels. Well, sheep uh, are prone to wander. Ah, yeah. Sheep require direction. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sheep need a shepherd of some kind or another. And you say, well, I don't follow anybody. Yeah, sure you do. You're following. Everybody's following somebody. I think Bob Dylan wrote a song about that. You got to follow somebody, man. You know, everybody follows something. I remember the Sprite commercial that used to be on that said, obey your thirst. And the commercial was all filled with people that looked like they were individuals. They're all creative. There's somebody painting, throwing paint on the wall. But you need to obey your thirst because you're in this typecast of crazy artist person that, you know, and we've narrowed it down from Madison Avenue of what you respond to. And so you're in this typecast. In this, so don't tell me you're not a sheep, right? The question is, is who, who's your shepherd? Who are you following, right? So you come to the Bible and you find that God calls you sheep because there's these things that are very true about you. And you're just so grateful that you found the good shepherd, one that would lay down his life for the sheep, one that loves you. Now, this, what shepherding is not, let me talk about this for a second. Shepherding is not what turned up in the 1970s and 80s that was called the shepherding movement. Does anybody remember this? Oh, well, 
Uh, I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> so in the, in the 1970s, the 1980s, there, a guy named Bob Mumford, Derek Prince, I don't know if you've heard any of these people, but they were involved in this movement called the shepherding movement. And essentially what happened was, if you were part of these churches, part of this movement was, you essentially were to be under the control of the church. And your shepherd would be charged with like complete control of your life. So let me give you an example. If you wanted to buy a house, you and your spouse would come with your bank statements, with, you know, comps on the house, and you would sit there with the shepherd, and the shepherd would decide, you know, the church would decide whether you should buy that house or not, or who you were going to marry, or things like that. The shepherding movement is what it was called, and this went on from the 70s to the 80s, and eventually there were, you know, charges of abuse within this sort of model. It, it fizzled out. Um, so I point that out to say that's not what shepherding is. I also point that out to say that that sort of heavy-handed leadership is still alive and well today in the heavy charismatic, the hyper-charismatic circles. There's a group of churches called the New Apostolic Reformation, and what they've taught within these churches is that the office of apostle is alive and well in the church. Now, we're not talking apostle like somebody that's just called to go out and plant churches with a, with a small a. We're talking, they believe capital A apostles are back in the church that have the same authority to talk to you as Peter would or John or anybody else. And they say they're on par with these apostles. In fact, they say every church that isn't under the rule of the prophet and the apostle are like not going to, you know, they're not pleasing God and, and everybody needs to come under this umbrella. These people are known for this same thing because you have an apostle in your life telling you what you need to do, where you need to go to school, how you need to serve. That is not what shepherding is. And we're going to see that in this passage. I just point those things out to warn you of those kind of things. If you run into somebody that's called apostle this or that and, you know, trying to have a heavy rule over you or other Christians, that's something that should definitely, uh, you know, send you in the other direction. He goes on to say, serving as overseers, they are to supervise, manage, watch over. You see that there. But they're not to do this by compulsion, but willingly. Now, I thought about this when I was young, right? I, my, my grandfather, I used to work on the milk route with him. That was my first job was I was a milkman, <laughs> a milkman assistant. You know, like they take the milk to the door of the house and, and so on. And then I was also a pig farmer. So we did those two things. And uh, my grandpa would wake me up about five in the morning, you know, to go do these things. And I did not like it. And so he would shoot me with a squirt gun and uh, try to get me out of bed. And I would go under compulsion, you know? I hated it, man. I would complain about this stuff all day long, you know? He'd be delivering the milk into some restaurant, and I'd be, like, hiding in the booth over here, like, taking a nap, you know? Like, I hated it. I, was, I did it, you know, under compulsion. And that's what Peter is saying. He said, you're an elder in the church. You're a pastor. You should not be doing... It's not like somebody's pushing you into doing something that you hate, right? Now... I've not been around a ton of pastors, but I have been around at least a few that complain about what they do. Now, maybe go through, you know, you'll go through seasons, you'll go through up and downs. In, in 10 years, I've definitely had my ups and downs, 11 years of doing this. I mean, I, you know, and my wife, God bless her, has probably listened to more than one complaint, you know. But overall, if this is the fixed mood of your heart, you should probably find something else to do. And now this... This applies to anybody in ministry. 
If you're serving based on compulsion, somebody's prodding you into doing something that you don't want to do, you should definitely, you know, take a break, you know, and sit down a little bit and, and get built back up again and see, that, see if this is what you want to do. Because um, nobody should be serving, but especially Peter's talking to the elders in the church. Nobody should be doing this under compulsion or guilt trip or anything like that, right? But willingly. Now, I want to point that out for a second, just those words, but willingly. Listen, men should be willing to lead churches. They should be. There is a shortage of this, and I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. There is a shortage of this in the body of Christ. Guys, I, I like this ministry called Far-Reaching Ministries, and they send, you know, people into Afghanistan, all kinds of different places, work in sex trafficking, all these different things. They're all over the world, and they say the one thing, you know, that's really, really, really challenging is the women are calling to get involved with these ministries all the time. But where are the men, you know? And I'm not saying this to put a trip on anybody. I just, I think that we need to really consider... You know, what does it look like for, for men to start, you know, being willing uh, to lead the body of Christ, you know, to serve as elders, to serve as pastors? He goes on to say, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Now, obviously, the health and wealth, prosperity people, <laughs> that's obvious dishonest gain. But I think the, uh, uh, you know, the, it, it goes beyond money here. If anybody is seeing the ministry as an opportunity to advance themselves, either monetarily, uh, politically, which has become really big, that people are trying to rope conservatism and Christianity together again like they did in the 80s. It's, it's just like this, trying to get in bed together. Uh, Christianity's not going to get in bed with anything else. We'll find that out the hard way if we keep doing this. Not for gain. The pulpit is not a place for personal advancement. And that's what he's getting at there. Certainly doesn't have to, you know, obviously people are to be compensated for ministry. It says that in the book of Corinthians, Paul says that if somebody preaches the gospel, they make their living by it. It also says don't muzzle the ox as it tramples out the grain, right? So you're not to, you know, it's, it's okay to, to get compensated in ministry. But if the motive, this has to deal with motives, if the motive of the heart is personal advancement, popularity, or something like that, that would make that dishonest gain. He goes on to say, nor being lords over. So now he gets back to actions and beliefs instead of motives. Being lords over people. Now, they are not to be heavy-handed, forceful, and domineering. And that's, um, he goes on to say, because these are the flock that have been entrusted to you. Those words are very important. When a flock has been entrusted to you, that means it doesn't belong to you. It means you're a steward and you're not to be a heavy-handed, domineering Lord over that which belongs to another. You're to love and to care for and to tend and to feed and to, you know, do the things of a shepherd. I used to live in this house in California and, uh, it's, it's interesting in Southern California, the houses are so expensive that it's very common for people to like rent out a house like room by room by room. And so you may just live in a house where you don't even know your roommates. And uh, I moved into this house and uh, there was this couple sharing this room upstairs. And um, the only time I ever saw her really was she was sitting down at the table making uh, like, 
juice of some kind of thing, like wheatgrass or something like that. And she'd make these, like, all these bottles for this guy to, uh, you know, drink all week. And she'd frequently be crying. And you're just like, what's going on? After a while, you live there. And then you hear him saying things over and over like, well, I'm your husband and you're my wife. You need to submit to me. And you'll, you'll hear things like that all over and over again. You're my wife. You're to do this and you're to do, treating her like she's like, you know, uh, a slave. And uh, that's lording your authority over somebody. Now, if you're a Christian in a marriage, you have authority. God has given you authority as the husband. You are the man of the house. You're, the buck stops with you. You're accountable for everything that goes on in your marriage as a husband. You're going to answer to God for your leadership. And so he's given you authority to fulfill your role. But your, your authority that you have is not to be wielded in such a way where it's lorded over your spouse. Let me give you a, a symptom of lording. If you have to go around and tell people often about your, you know, remind them what your position is, you're probably not doing it right. You know, if you're at work and you got to go around and say, look, I'm the assistant manager here. And, you know, I will tell you if you've got to do that all the time, it means people don't respect what you're doing. Uh, but if you have to threaten people to get them to listen to you, um, you know, that's, you're probably lording your position over somebody else. He says, the church is not to be a place like that. Matthew 20, 25 says, Jesus called them to himself. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. That's the whole thing here. And what he's getting at, he says, Gentiles, he says, people that don't know God, essentially just generally speaking, the way the world works is you've got a boss sitting at the top and everybody sits underneath that boss. And that boss from their office, you know, from their position dictates what's going on underneath of them. Now, kingdom leadership is a whole different thing. When you're a Christian, it's not top down, it's bottom up meaning that you're to be the servant of all. Jesus says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all, right? You remember that song? If you want to be, I'm not going to sing it. Matthew, or sorry, Mark 10, 45 says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The privileged position is the lowly position in the kingdom of God. It's the one that washes feet. It's the one that will do the lowly tasks, praising and worshiping the Lord as they do that, serving others, leading from a position of servanthood. <clears throat> I want to say, guys, this, this passage is dealing with elders in the church and pastors in the church, but men are called to be the pastors of their homes. And so by extension, this applies to us in our homes as well, in our marriages, it applies to us in how our kids, it applies to uh, any sort of environment where there's authority going on. Um, you know, let me, make a, let me make a thing. If you're an assistant manager and you work with a bunch of like entry-level people that the only way they listen to is threats, don't, don't feel condemned by this because I know there are situations where the only time people can be motivated is like, you know, you know remember the, the proverb says, the rod is for the back of fools. So, I mean, it, there is a time, there are certain people out there that only listen and only correct themselves when they get the rod, you know what I mean? And so I get that. I'm not trying to be condemning and, you know, I don't want you to leave here going, how in the world am I supposed to serve these people that are just fools? You know, well, I don't know. You got to pray about it. Man. 
He says, but being examples to the flock. Now the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And I think that's a great attitude for elders in the church. But I also think that's a great attitude for any Christian just to say, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not perfect. I have a ton of problems. But I take them to Jesus and I repent and I ask for forgiveness. And I'm a man after his heart. I'm trying to go for his heart and I love him. Even though I fail miserably, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. But then he also says, follow me as I follow Christ. So you put those two together. Look at the motive, though, and the motivation that elders should have, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, the chief shepherd is Jesus. And so in a church, you know, we're under shepherds, but he's the shepherd. And so when he appears at his second coming... Um, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The crown of glory, you're going to receive a reward from the Lord. You're going to receive recognition, you know, for fulfilling this place that he called you. And I'll tell you guys, this this is what we want to do is we want to live for those crowns. These crowns fade. These crowns fall apart. But those are everlasting. Number two, here he goes to young people and then to all. Submit yourselves to elders. Likewise, you younger people, Submit yourself to your elders. Um, This is dealing with church leadership that the young people in the church should be easy to lead. They shouldn't be causing problems and, you know, getting uh, getting in trouble and things like that. Then he goes to, talks to all of them and he says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. So young and old church members of the body of Christ are to be subject, are to be submissive. They are to serve one another. So you see the idea here, let the pastor work and serve the people, but let the people serve one another. That's what the church is supposed to be. The the ministry, Christian ministry is not the minister guy serves the people and that's it. Christian ministry is the minister guy equips the body of Christ to serve one another, to do the work of ministry. That's what the church is about. That's what he says here. Let all of you be submissive to one another. And he says, and be clothed with humility. We were talking about this earlier today, just the importance of the virtue of humility. He says, be clothed with it. You know, sometimes I look at my clothing and and I'm I'm like, what am I going to wear today? Well, one thing I need to be sure to wear is humility, right? He says, clothe yourself with humility. What does that look like? Well, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I think C.S. Lewis is credited with that. It's not thinking less of yourself, going around beating yourself up. In fact, you should have a healthy confidence in who you are in the Lord and who he's made you to be and the fact that he died to serve and love you. You should have a healthy confidence in who you are as a person. There's no reason a Christian should be insecure, but a Christian should definitely be humble, not thinking of themselves. All my needs are met in the Lord, so that frees me up now to serve others. Now, I don't do this perfectly, but that's the idea. Humility is willingly, deliberately putting others before myself. Humility is displayed by a joyful, submissive attitude. Humility is displayed by a desire to be useful, serving in even lowly positions. Humility is displayed as someone who needs no recognition, who does not need a spotlight, does not need somebody to say thank you. That's humility. Humility was not considered a virtue In the Greco-Roman world, it was considered a weakness. Christianity revolutionized how people think about this uh, virtue. Now he quotes from Proverbs 3.34, and he gives reasoning for what he just said. He says, "You, you guys need to clothe yourself. We need to clothe ourselves with humility. Why? Because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, if you're going on in life 
and you feel like God is just resisting you. I mean, it says right there, God resists the proud. When I'm operating with a haughty spirit, when I have a stiff neck and I, I refuse to allow God to correct me through circumstances, through however he does, when I refuse that, God resists me. Your plans, you might have some plans, but it's the Lord's will that will stand. He says, but God gives grace to the humble and how we need that. And so we're so grateful for that. We're so thankful for that. Scary word, resist. It means the Greek means to set up a battle array against. (laughs) You want God to go to battle against you? Just get a stiff neck. Therefore, he turns to this word that tells you what you should do. He says, therefore, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now, let me refresh your memory that Peter's readers were dealing with uh, persecution. And really, the tone of the letter is, is you've got to receive all, everything that's going on in your life. You've got to understand that the mighty hand of the Lord, he's in control of everything. And he sent trials into your life, and they are to, pur- to purify you. And they are to strengthen your faith, right? And, so, and then remember, he says, so don't, don't rebel against the government. Don't be, don't be not submissive in your marriage. You know, don't, he gives all these you know, sections about submission, you know, and he says, look, you need to be submissive people under the hand of the Lord. And that's the remedy right here. That, this is what you do, is you, you humble yourselves under the hand of God. You, you, you say, look, these circumstances that are happening in my life, they could not happen to me unless the Lord allowed this. He has a mighty hand that he can do whatever he wants with. So if it's in my life, there's a purpose for it. Now, if I keep saying, let me out of this, Lord, explain why you're doing this. Give me the answer. What are you trying to teach me through this all the time? If that's always my heart and kind of this rebellion. Remember the book of Job? Remember the end of the book of Job where God comes in and he goes, okay, where were you? And he goes on that whole thing where by the end of it, you're like, oh gosh, you know, (laughs) right? That's what Peter's telling you. He's saying, look, you need to just, the things that come in your life, and I don't care what they are, they're every single thing. I need to have this mindset that God is sovereign and that he is in control. And I need to humble myself underneath of that. I don't sit as a judge above these things, demanding anything. I need to take myself deliberately down under the hand of God and to say, if this is in my life, I need to, I need to understand you're sovereign, your hand. And that might be incredibly tough news for somebody. It is tough in, in situations in life, different ones. And he says that he may exalt you in due time. Listen, no matter what we're going through in life, trials, tribulations, problems and suffering, things that seem very unjust, things that are unjust, there is an end to those things in your life. It's either going to be in death when you see the Lord face to face, you're going to be released, or there is coming a time where he's going to lift you up out of it. So that's the mindset we need to have. We need to be humble people, clothed in humility under the mighty hand of the Lord. Now, as a result, look what happens, verse 7. Notice the wording there, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. That's, that's the manner in which you humble yourself. The manner in which I humble myself under the hand of the Lord is that which I am casting all of my cares on him, just saying, look, you, you take it, God. 
This is your business. This is too wonderful for me. I can't do this. You need to run life. I can't do it. I've been trying to run the universe. I'm not very good at it. I need to humble myself and submit. Other versions say that casting all your anxieties upon him. Now, there is an epidemic with anxiety today, and there is a fortune being made off of this. And I wonder how much of this could be healed as we just meditate on this truth. I mean, look at the situations in your life and make the conscious choice of the will to say, I'm turning this over to you, God. You're all-powerful. You're all-knowing. You're wiser than I am. You've been running the universe far longer than I could ever, ever even been here. And you've proven to me that you have my best interest at heart by sending your son to die for me. Now, if all of those things are true, and I sit b- myself below that truth, the anxiety just starts to come out of my heart. The worry just starts to come out of my heart. Amen. Nobody makes any money off of it. I'm not down on, you know, remedies to help people that are in dire straits situations, but I just don't think that those remedies, those are Band-Aids. This is a cure. No. We have an amazing ability to deal with our fears and worries and anxieties because we have the Lord. We have uh, this ability to, rather than stress out wondering what is happening, why it's happening, we have this ability to cast it onto him to have him remove every stressor from my life. His remedy is to draw me into a place of humility. You'd say, Lord, you know, I surrender to your hand, whatever you're doing. You are the potter. I am the clay. I don't need an answer, Lord. I just need you. As I humble myself, as I drop my agenda, as I seek to quit manipulating situations and putting things into my time frame and simply rest in him, my anxious care is cast upon him. Verse 8 says, be sober, vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, he walks around like a roaring lion. Now, be sober and vigilant, two commands. The word sober, it, it, could, it has to do with being sober from alcohol, not being intoxicated, not being buzzed, not being intoxicated of any kind. Um, but it's more than that. The word being sober means to be clear-minded. It means to be thinking clearly, particularly spiritually. It's to have a spiritual clear mind, to be in the right mind frame when it comes to things of the Lord. When it comes to your Christianity, you need to be like walking around with the truths of the Lord in your mind and, and be ready. Be vigilant, essentially just modifying it. Be vigilant, be on guard, uh, all these things. Um, being sober, it doesn't mean not having fun. Uh, it doesn't mean, oh, I'm sober, so I got to be a mean guy all the time. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about thinking clearly when it comes to spiritual things. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, now the word adversary, the Greek means an opponent in a lawsuit. Okay? You're, the devil is an opponent in a lawsuit. Like he's, he's bringing charges against you always. Right? The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. That's where the word devil is what it means is diabolos. It means slanderer, right? He's accusing the brethren all day long. And that somehow or another, I don't know exactly how it works, but that somehow or another makes it its way into your mind. 
you're not good enough. God's not good. God hasn't really truly forgiven you. I don't know if you're even really a Christian. You know, should a Christian be doing things like that? Oh my gosh, when was the last time you read your Bible? Some Christian you are. That's the kind of stuff that's always going on. And so Peter warns him. He goes, you have to be sober and be vigilant. You've got you to understand these are like fiery darts coming at your heart, trying to screw up your walk with the Lord. You've got like, you to be on top of this, you know? How do you combat it? You combat it with the truth. You combat it with the gospel. In context, Peter's readers facing persecution, they need to stay spiritually alert because Satan is looking for every opportunity to destroy their witness. Same thing today as a believer. The enemy is looking to destroy your walk and your witness. We get spiritually sleepy, especially when things are going well. You know, I don't know about you, but when, I, when things are not going well, I pray more. I'm more desperate for the Lord. I'm seeking the Lord. But it's, it's, I'm in danger when things start going well. I think that's what happened to David, right? King David, he's on the roof when he should have been doing something else, and here he is. And that's when things get tempting for me. You know, uh, that's when I'm in danger. I can recognize that is when things are going well. I need, to, I need to be awake. I need to realize, hey, you're still in a battle here, you know? Look at what he says here in verse 9. This is very direct. He says, resist him. Now, that's defensive terminology. He doesn't say go attack. He doesn't say, you know, anything like that. You know, he says resist. James 4, 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The devil must be and can be resisted. That's good news. You know how I find that, I mean, it's when the attacks of the devil drive you to Jesus, that just foils his plan altogether, you know? I love that. Adam, you know, what kind of a pastor are you, man? You shouldn't have this and that. You oh, you're a Christian. Oh, my goodness. Like that. Say, you know, you're flawed. You're messed up. You're not good enough. Oh, I know. <laughs> Isn't that great that Jesus would save somebody like me? I mean, good grief, you know? And the devil has to find another plan at that point, you know? You're not going to get me in this condemnation stuff. There's no condemnation for anybody in Christ. Are you kidding me? You're going to try something different than that, you know? Now, we need to be told to resist the devil because the time is not yet when he's kept. Remember Revelation 20, verses 1 through 2? It talks about you know, Satan being, he'll be kept for a thousand years, and that's not yet. This, you know, is the world of the devil. The Bible says that the world is under the sway of the evil one. This is his domain right now, right? Remember when he tempted Jesus? He said, I'll give you all this. Jesus didn't say, wait, you can't do that. Jesus didn't, didn't stop him. This belongs to the enemy, Adam and Eve forfeited the title deed to the earth. The book of Revelation, Jesus will take it back. Who's worthy to open the seal? He is. But it's not yet. So you have to be watchful. He says, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, isn't that comforting? You know, the things that you're going with, you know, going through, the things that you were dealing with before you got here this morning in the car last night, this week, this last season of life, it might look different in other people's lives, but we're all dealing with the same thing. We're all dealing with a completely cunning, crafty enemy that's trying to destroy our walk, trying to destroy our life with Christ, and he does it in different ways, but we're all in it together, you know, universally. And so that's pretty cool to me to know that, you know, you're my brother in the Lord. You're my sister. Now, look at how Peter prays for this little suffering flock. He says, but may the God of grace who called you into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. 
what a beautiful way to begin a prayer, right? God of all grace. That's a good reminder. I love what he says there after you've suffered a while. It's only a, it's only a while. Remember Paul? What he says in the book of Romans? He says, uh, what we're suffering now, it doesn't compare to what's going to be revealed. He calls it a light momentary affliction. <laughs> Coming from a guy that's been whipped and beaten and stoned and shipwrecked. Left for dead. He says it's just a, it's just a temporary, light, momentary light affliction, you know. Wow. Coming from a guy that was taken up into the third heaven, and he saw, he got a glimpse of it. He knows. This doesn't even compare to what's coming. After you've suffered a while, God will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That is the work of the Lord in the believer's life, those things there. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. Now that is a doxology. It's when we just turn to the Lord and we just everything this, but we just lift it up to him and we praise him. And that's what Peter does there. And he ends this wonderful letter uh, that he wrote to these suffering pilgrims in a strange land, sufferers facing persecution. Then he puts a little ending on here. This is common in epistles in this day and age, very common uh, style of writing where, you know, in the beginning uh, we talked about, you know, it's the different formats. There's the introduction, then there's the prayer and blessing, and then at the end there would be the closing. And notice he says, by Silvanus, our favorite faithful brother, as I consider him. So, trivia question. Who wrote the book of First Peter? Well, Peter wrote the book of First Peter, but guess who actually wrote the, the letters? Silvanus. That's what he's talking about right here. See, it was very common practice in that day that you would have an amanuensis, which is a big word for like secretary or something. So Peter would dictate this to um, Silvanus. Now, scholars believe this is Silas. You remember from the book of Acts? This is Silas right here, most likely. And it's interesting in the Greek texts, I'm no Greek scholar, but I can read some of what they write, the Greek scholars. And they say that the, the change in uh, Greek style and, and grammar right here abruptly changes because it was a common practice that at the end of the letter, uh, then Peter would grab the pen himself and he would stick it uh, to, the, to the paper and, and he would finish. And so he says, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him. What a thing to be called a faithful brother, a faithful sister. Many people can find people that will tout their greatness, but... Can they find somebody that's faithful, you know? He says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting you and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So there's a summary, really, of the letter. Is, is, you know, to wrap Peter up in, in a nutshell, to say, look, you're going through suffering and persecution because of your faith, but God's grace is sufficient for this. A solid, real relationship with him is all we need to make it through this fallen and strange world. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, Babylon here is probably code word for Rome. Um, 
historical uh, evidence shows that actually Mark spent time in Rome. Also, historic tradition tells us that this is where Peter, you know, served out. He was there in Rome for a long time. He was martyred there, him and his wife. And so most likely Babylon is like a code word where, uh, for Rome, and he's trying to kind of fly under the radar with it a little bit. So he says, she who is in Babylon, referring to the church that is there, greet, you know, elect together, greets you. One more reminder of the fact that as a Christian, you're God's elect. He chose you. That's a great thing to have in your heart, right? She greets you there. So does Mark, my son. This is John Mark, you know, the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark, people, um, scholars largely agree that the, he got his information from Peter. In fact, even some people would call it, you know, Peter's gospel uh, because Mark, you know, apparently like interviewed Peter to get the info to write the, the gospel of Mark. So he calls him, Mark, my son, he's with me. Peace to you, all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Closing words to a persecuted church in Asia Minor. Look not to this world for peace, but to Christ, the only place it is truly found. Turn over to John, please, chapter 13 in your Bible, if you would. Some concluding thoughts here. There needs to be humility in the way the elders lead, in the way people serve, pastors in the church. Humility in the way that young people act towards leadership and towards elders. Humility in the way that we all submit to and serve one another. In John chapter 3, I'm sorry, 13, I'm sorry. John chapter 13, uh, verse 4. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments. You remember this? For the Last Supper, Jesus, you know, is about to be crucified, and, and this is the end of his, you know, three or so years of ministry with his disciples. He rose from supper after they ate the Last Supper together there and laid aside his garments. This was common for a servant in that day. They'd take aside, uh, you know, their other garment, and they would clothe themselves then with their servant's garment. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel in which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? In other words, this doesn't make sense. You're the Messiah. You're the, you're the boss. You're the leader. But yet, you're down in this position of Washing feet? What I am doing now, you do not understand. But you will know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Oh, Peter. <laughs> Just never got over that, did he? Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet then, but also my hands and my head. Oh, my goodness. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And he says, but not all of you. He's talking about Judas. The position of 
a servant. Turn to Philippians, please, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3. Instructions to a church. Let nothing... Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He left where he was and condescended, was born to a poor couple, in a relationship that seemed quite scandalous, even in the day. There was no room at the end. You know the story. And he made himself of no reputation. If anyone could have ever come and made themselves of reputation, it would have been God in the flesh. But this is what he chose to do. This is what he chose to do with the world. How he chose to win the world was not by lording himself over people and threatening and things like that. He came, the word says, not to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. He came to save the world. And he came to do this by winning men and women's hearts, by taking the position of a humble servant. And God, I want to be one of those too. Let's pray. Father, thank you.